This week on Walking the Dog, we've got a guest who, I'm not going to lie, was pretty easy to book because it's me. It's actually a live recording of my chat with the wonderful Catherine Ryan, who interviewed me with both of our dogs, Meg Ryan and Raymond, on stage at the Leicester Square Theatre. We chatted about my book, Everybody Died So I Got a Dog, which is a memoir about dealing with losing my family and my little saviour, Raymond, a shih tzu who came into my life and sort of turned it around. I mean, nothing's perfect. He's got terrible breath. But you take the highs, you've got to take the lows. I really hope you enjoy my chat with Catherine and our dogs, and hopefully it will give you an insight into why I decided to do this podcast in the first place. She didn't shy away from the tough parts of my story, but she was absolutely hilarious, and I just adored chatting to her, so I hope you enjoy it as well. My book, Everybody Died So I Got a Dog, is out, by the way, this Thursday, March the 7th, from Amazon and all good bookshops. I mean, it might be in some bad bookshops, but mainly good ones. Anyway, I'm going to leave you to it. Here's me and Catherine. Good afternoon, Leicester Square Theatre. We have a very special afternoon for you. Please welcome to the stage the most fabulous Catherine Ryan. I shall put my book, Everybody Died So I Got a Dog, written by Emily Dean. I shall put that down right here. Thank you so much for being here this afternoon, Leicester Square Theatre. It is without further ado, I must welcome her. I'm so excited. I have like an intro because she's achieved so much and so much coming. She's a writer and a radio presenter. Are you listening to the Frank Skinner show on Absolute Radio with Emily? Yeah, just across the street. She's so busy. She's just hopped along. Um, It's an award-winning show. She's got the hugely successful podcast for the Times called Walking the dog. She spent eight years as deputy editor of InStyle magazine, and it shows. She's written for titles such as The Times, The Evening Standard, and You Magazine. She lives in London, supports Arsenal for some reason, and her career highlight was when Mark Gattis called her sci-fi royalty due to her childhood role for the BBC cult series Day of the Triffids. Am I pronouncing that correctly? I don't pronounce British things correctly a lot of the time, but please welcome the wonderful, the stunning, the glamorous, the genius, Miss Emily D. Okay, it's not just me, as you can see. They'll come. The dogs will come. We have dogs. Should we introduce them, Catherine? Megan. Maggie. Meg. Well done, Violet. Maggie. (laughs) That's Catherine's daughter, Violet, not some random child who just picked up in the street, by the way. Victorian dog handler. That is illegal. Um, This is Ray Ray, Raymond of Emily and Raymond. (laughs) I know you thought it was a moving hairpiece. It's not... I know. Merch think, is available soon. And then this is my dog. Not as good looking. Megan. Me- Megan. Oh, Kath, don't put yourself down. Come here. No, but she's not. But Raymond is so special, and we all know it. And plus, he looks exactly like you. At, <laughs> at first glance, Megan doesn't look like me till you know me and hear my rapping. And then you know I am also black and white. So. <laughs> but you don't snore like Megan. But we didn't know, we should say, they're brother and sister. I know. And this was kind of the soap storyline that none of us saw coming. Yeah. And I'd forced myself to be friends with Catherine. Yeah. Quite well, let's talk about... Should okay. we say how we met? So let's tell everyone okay. how we met. Because it's... Yeah, because you come out of it well, and it's really embarrassing I don't think I do. We might have different uh, stories about... I don't know. How do you think we met? 
Okay. <laughs> I, f- I feel we met. I'm going to put you down, actually, Ray. Go on. Go and see your sister. Um, I think we met at Jimmy Carl's. That's very early for a name drop, isn't it? Yeah. But I'm sorry. Loads of name I'm... dropping in the book, and we'll get to that soon. It's so tantalizing. Continue. <laughs> Um, we met at Jimmy Carr's, and you claimed afterwards that I came up to you and said, what did I say? You said, I think we should be friends. <laughs> but what do you mean I claimed that? Well, like, you and your seven. You yeah. got but I think that's a really nice thing to do, because you go up to partners, don't you? Mm. Well, I don't. <laughs> no. People go up to approach people romantically... So I thought, well, I like her, and yeah. I think I get a good energy, and I'd like to be her friend, so maybe I'm just going to be bold and ask her. You're very bold, and I don't want to let the cat out of the bag too quickly. I may have already done so, but when you're glamorous single women in show business, yeah. as we are, I feel that we get invited to a lot more things because we don't have lamentable partners. Because... <laughs> I know there was a long time in both of our lives where people would be like, oh, I can't bring her because she'll bring him along. <laughs> and now we get invited all the time to these things because we're ingenues. And I know that we went to Jimmy's, was we it that enter- No, we perform. it's like the role of an escort. We entertain the husbands yeah. for two hours mm-hmm. and then we just go back to our houses and we're no stress. Yeah, no stress. We come with a blowout, cute shoes. Blowout, that's hair, by the way, okay. <laughs> No, it isn't. Not for me. Uh, <laughs> this is why I love her. So uh, we had been invited to an evening of wink murder. Yes. Do you know in the 70s, I think famous people used to do more things than that. But now Jimmy's parties are all about like board games, wink murder. I know. Why weren't we around in Freddie Mercury's time? And there was cocaine off, you know, small people's heads I and know. things like that going on. <laughs> Not wink murder at Jimmy Carr's. I'm more of a wink murder kind of gal. And we were invited because the numbers were uneven. Shout out Emily and Catherine. We show up. And, but I'd seen you there a few times and I'd remarked about how stylish you were, how lovely you seemed. You just float around the room, ingenuing your way across all these parties. And then, uh, no, we hadn't really spoken. And then you just said, I think we should be friends. I know. And you were right. And I was really inspired by you because I did also, I got Ray because of Catherine. Because I interviewed Catherine for my Times podcast. And... I just had always had this obsession with having a dog family, which, you know, I grew up in, in, in a family which could not have been less like a dog family, as you know. It was more the family where you'd say, you know, why is granny being horrible to me? And my mother would say, because she's on amphetamines, darling. I told you. <laughs> so the idea, so I'd always thought, well, I can't have that family. And that's not for me. It was like I don't have a passport to that world. And then I met you. And I'm not saying you're like you're on amphetamines or anything but it was just that sense that okay this doesn't have an estate car and there's no lawyer husband and I always thought you needed that to get a dog but turns out you don't um and I thought I love this there's just pictures of Catherine and Violet and they're kind of it just felt lovely and warm and like you'd created a space and you'd shaped your own world I suppose and that was just really inspiring to me. And also you had a dog who looked like a gremlin and I thought, well, I can take care of that. Yeah. So that's what I got. Our little dogs aren't yippy. They're very stylish, quiet, really uh, disenfranchised in many ways, looking dogs, but they're perfect for us. So that is the first sentence in your book. We... I like the way that you're trying to really PR our dogs and look at Ray's just like running wild. But this is not what you think of little dogs. They're not yipping. They're not... Just do that. Don't, you know, allow yourself to be distracted by the dogs. That's why they're here. Yeah. 
Um, he looks like my hairpiece. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I know it's always moving. Um, the first line in your book says, we would never be a dog family. And I love your book. I've told you this. I love it so much. Uh, and you think that it's going to be harrowing, of course, because we know how it ends. Um, uh, but there's Spoiler so much of it. the title. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but there's so much of it that's uh, specific and joyful and unique about your childhood and really about your sister Rachel's life. So when you say we would never be a dog family, to you, I know that growing up you had this idea that dog families were what? Dog families to me, and I don't know if anyone here comes from a dog family, if so I'm really jealous of you, because dog families to me, they had things like Tupperware, and they would, (laughs) I know, but to me that's like Narnia, that was like, and they would watch programs like Life on Earth, you know, and at Christmas they'd all gather around and watch It's a Wonderful Life. Whereas we'd watch a sort of black and white French film about adultery. (laughs) Um, That would be our Christmas Eve. And we had lots of writers and artists, and it was was kind of bohemian, intellectual North London, I suppose. Although we were quite at the bottom rung of the ladder, to be honest. We were quite aspirational. But it, was, it just meant that it was, it was a struggle. Where's Ray gone? Oh, there you are. He's found someone. Maybe. If you want to pick him up, by the way, and give him a cuddle, you're more than welcome. You won't mind. You can pass him around. <laughs> oh, look. Catherine, you're going to have to bring him to every gig. I know, I know. Great. He's great. We just um, have to check people more carefully before we let them hold our children. Yeah. <laughs> just bring your CRB check along. <laughs> you all right? You all right with a pervert? You fine? <laughs> okay. Okay, you hold Ray Ray. <laughs> you hold So him. you're artistic. So, yeah, so, that, so to me, because my family was very dull and she's on amphetamines, and just sort of, I mean, it was a benign chaos, but it was, it was definitely chaos, you know. And so I had this sense of dog families just being, I'd never be, we'd never be like them. We would, we would just never have a Labrador because, also, we moved around a lot. We had mm-hmm. a very peripatetic childhood, and I, you know, we were... I say, I think, at one point in my book, it's like, we weren't going to be chased by retrievers. We were chased by bailiffs. That was kind of our existence. So, yeah. And so then I think, and that is that childhood longing, isn't it, for what you don't have, which we all have. And actually, when I speak to some of my friends now, they say, oh, your family looks so glamorous. And, you know, it was so funny because you'd come to school with black in your teeth and we'd say, what's that? And you'd say, oh, it must be caviar I had for breakfast. (laughs) Of course, what they didn't know was that, you know, the caviar was bought on credit and it was all kind of smoke and mirrors and... So, yeah, I felt it was chaos and a kind of benevolent chaos. But nevertheless, I think probably as a kid, you do want a sense of order, don't you, in your life? And I didn't have that with my parents, really. So, yeah, I just, I thought one day I'm going to join those dog families and I am going to have a Labrador. And then I didn't because, you know, I have this theory that, a sort of theory, I think, it, I think most people agree upon this, like, like psychologists and stuff, that you do two things with a family pattern, don't you? You either conform or rebel. Mm. And whenever people say, oh, I'm just not affected by my family script at all, I'm like, yeah, all right, have yeah. some therapy, because everyone is. <laughs> and I think what happens is if you grow up in a, tradi- in a traditional family, you get people who are rebellious or people who go down that route. In my case, I went a bit sort of late nights and parties, and my sis- it was my sister Rachel who she got the flower and ball life, as I called it, the mole's breath door and the the dog called Giggle and the kids and the husband and, and all that. And I think I sort of accessed it through her. I thought, right, I can, I can have the dog family experience through her, which, you know, and that felt like that was enough. Yeah. 
Well, I like that while your parents were running from bailiffs and sticking it to the man, the man was Harrods. You know, your mother would max out this Harrods. I think that's absolutely fine. I love the family. Um, some of my favorite parts of your childhood was when your parents would use Rachel's bed for their friends to have affairs in. Um, that when they got cross with you, they wouldn't tell you, but they'd just quote Shakespeare and stick it to the cupboards. Like, yeah, they, do thine own self be true. A coward dies a thousand times before his death. That's a great way to punish a five-year-old. <laughs> That's absolutely right. They would do both of the... They would, well, the first thing with the bras, yeah, yeah, that was an unfortunate experience, was that my sister was like, what's this dirty grey bra in my bed? I mean, if she was having an affair this woman, she could have at least got nice underwear. <laughs> Even as a child, I think I thought... Some of them oh, like it dirty. Yeah. They don't want... <laughs> and my sister, and this was under a Peter Rabbit duvet. Mm-hmm. I mean, please. And my sister said, what's this? And it was the casual nature with which my mother dispensed this information. You think most parents would say, darling, I'm really sorry. You know, it was just, I think she was probably, probably smoking. She normally was and staring at Casper. She went, oh, darling, that belongs to Kerry. She's passed away, it's fine. Um, that belongs Everybody to died. Everybody's died. <laughs> and you can't lie all the dead, it's great. Um, she said, darling, that belongs to Kerry. She's having an affair with the Paris office. To the Paris office. <laughs> I think he was some sort of... I don't know, he worked for the French embassy. So she... Um, we just... Rachel said, but that's my bed. Were they in there? She went, yes, they come and they, they do their afternoon thing and then they go. So, What's your but, problem? No, exactly. <laughs> Deal with it. And the quotes thing was really weird. Yeah, we would come downstairs and if we'd done something really bad, I mean, this was a really bad thing, we would just see a note and written in... Sort of my mother had taught herself calligraphy and it would just be, yeah, a series of Shakespeare quotes. But so brilliantly passive-aggressive. It yeah. never said, girls, I'm upset with you. It would just be, to thine own self be true, with yeah. a sort of flourish underneath. So I love that when you got caught with booze at school, she rolled her eyes, but when you said you wanted to quit piano lessons, she wrung her hands and said, those words hurt me deeply, Emily. <laughs> I mean, you want a different family than you have. I feel like I want this family. Do you? Although I'm interested to ask you, Kath, because I know you are, but are your, your family are over in this country at the moment. So, so, no, they're know. gone. Okay, don't worry, them. we can say what we want. Um, did you, when I talk about the dog family mm-hmm. and my family, which, let's face it, was, you know, I mean, it was a bit yeah. batshit, but do you, where do you identify in those two families? Um, well, we weren't normal, uh, but we weren't as, I mean, we're from Canada, so we do everything a little bit less ostentatiously, perhaps, than British people. I wish that, you know, my family were normal in, a, in an entirely different way. We'd wake up Christmas morning, and the dishwasher would be pushed against the door, and my mother smoked as well, and I'd be like, why is the dishwasher against the door? And she'd be like, because your father got in a fight with the uncles, and I locked them all in the basement. What? What do you mean? And I'd be like, okay. She was like, I don't want any of that violence coming upstairs, doll. I was like, okay. Um, but anytime I wanted to be normal, my mother said two things to me. She'd say, if we all liked the same thing, we'd all be married to your father. And she'd also say, um, I, I'd say, I want to be like the other girls, mommy. I want to be quiet and normal. Yeah. Um, and she'd say, those bitches aren't normal. They're ordinary. It's different. <laughs> It was good. You see, I love that. But that's I a brilliant attitude that she gave you. But things wouldn't happen like this 
your your mother spent hours at the bloody Nigerian embassy picking up her sodding mother, pissed, of course. (laughs) You know, that's far more interesting than your uncles being violent. I know. Well, that was because my grandmother had five. I had five grandfathers because she had five husbands. So we would just meet these new ones and we'd go, what's this one called? Okay, let's talk about your grandmother because I've made some notes here. I love so many women in your life, Emily, were these... Uh, just really groundbreaking, inspirational women, kind of like early settlers for what we are now. So I know your mother, or your grandmother, rather, Christine. Yeah, my mom's Christine, yeah. Your mom's Christine. What's your grandmother called? Who knows? She had about 10 names. She would literally change her name. Let's call her Ivy May. Josie, let's call her. That was one of her names. (laughs) Honestly, you would be with someone, you'd go, don't call me that, darling. This one knows me as Josie. She would change her name because she had so many men. Oh. Yes. So she had the starter husband. She had the starter she... husband. I think that was my grandfather. Okay. And honestly, I don't know. Then she married um, Bio the Nigerian, but he turned out to be a bigamist, which was unfortunate. Mm. Um, so, and Not she for took him. her. Well, no, exactly. He took her to the police station and tried to report her for disobedience. I didn't go down too well. <laughs> So, you're, so you're, yes, my grandmother, so she would, and she lived, and we, I mean, I thought my childhood was odd, but I mean, you know, it was a very hold my beer, because when I would go over to my grandmother's, that was when the real madness would begin, and she lived with, a, we would be like sort of eight or ten, me and my sister, and she lived with um, a male stripper, mm. um, and yeah, it's kind of weird, isn't it, really, <laughs> place to dump kids. But he would do his routines. I mean, he abridged them for us. <laughs> he was really sensitive like that. And he never stripped off completely. No. And my grandmother would be sitting there getting really drunk. And he'd be going up and down the thing. And my sister and I would be trying to look at cartoons going, why is this man taking his clothes? We don't care. So what do you think, girls? I mean, he was oh. a gay stripper, can I say. Um, but he was, um, it was lovely. And, but it just was weird. Because obviously then I'd go to the dog families. And they'd be saying, should we play Ludo? lovely and I thought I don't want to tell them about the male stripper I don't I don't think it's going to go down very well so I did on a sort of serious note I suppose when you're when you're kind of absorbed in a a slightly almost like a circus of a, of a childhood and what I learned to do was shape shift a lot so if I was with the dog families then I would change my whole vernacular and I would copy them like a spy I would say goody because I think, well, that's what they say. And they'd use weird swear words. I mean, we'd use the C word and we'd use everything. Whereas they'd say, that's a bit bloody bonkers. <laughs> and I'd try and copy them. And then, of course, I'd go over to the male stripper and the bigger Miss Nigerian, you know. And it all changed. So I suppose that was the legacy that was possibly a negative thing. Mm-hmm. was just feeling I had to change all the time to fit in, you know. Um, and, and I don't... I don't get the sense with your childhood when you talk about that and you talk about your mum, I, I get the sense that you were pretty much the same person, you know. Throughout. I wasn't as clever as you obviously were. See, I, this is why I just think I you're mean, so spectacular. I, I, I no, it's true. Okay, so I'll, I'll say one thing about your grandmother and then back to you being a little spy. Um, your grandmother was a great beauty in her day and we all know what that means. A lot of women... Older women are described that way. And uh, you write, the hordes of men my grandmother got through were part of her story, but she was the one driving the narrative. That shift that women entering middle age are expected to make from center stage coquette to hazy backdrop was one she refused to acknowledge. Her sense of entitlement was never slung out along with her youthful beauty. If anything, it became an even more ferocious blaze. That's true. 
what a woman. Why do you want to be a dog family when you've got this woman? <laughs> but, you know, I kind of realized that now. And actually, it was only oddly when writing it that I realized, God, I've had these incredibly influential women in my life. I've mm. been really lucky like that. And even my mother, it's like, you know, they were outliers. And women back then, there was that sense of, you know, I make that analogy about you were sort of carving through with a machete through the undergrowth and you had to be my grandmother you know look maybe she had to live with a male stripper and marry five men because it was those extreme people that changed the landscape for people like us really you know and god bless them let's talk about another extreme person in the book my favorite Lindsay DePaul okay Yes, more name dropping. Um, Lindsay DePaul started hanging out with your mother. So we should explain, because some of the younger people here might not know who she is. But she was a, I'm assuming younger people here, probably all 70, I can't see you properly, but you look great. Um, She was a pop star in the 70s, 80s. And she was well known for having a beauty spot here. That was kind of her thing. Um, And she saw me, I saw her, she was our neighbour, basically, and I saw her painting it on one day. She went, don't tell any, any journalists or anyone on the Daily Mail. I was like, seven. I was like, oh, hello, diary. But she, um, she was known, you know, interestingly, she always controlled her own sort of destiny as well. And I, I just admired her. She was like, well, you say what you were going to say. Catherine. I just love her so much because I'm from Canada. Obviously, I didn't know Lindsay DePaul, but I came here and I learned about her through you and through your book. And you always speak about her with uh, such love. And she is largely the reason that you're such close friends with Jane Goldman yes. from childhood, from infancy. Lindsay DePaul. Um, so she and your mother started reading A Woman in Her Own Right in awful. the 80s. And feminist they started getting really started feminist. Reading. It ruined our lives. And Lindsay said to you, there are so many li- quotes, not just from Lindsay, from your mother, from your entire family, that have been transformative in my life now. She said to you when you were small, uh, Emily, I bought this house myself so no man can tell me what to do in it. She did, yeah. And that's what you and I have done now. Oh, yeah. You hear that? I bought this house <laughs> myself so no man can tell me what to do in it. And she dated uh, many famous men that you mentioned in the book, Ringo Starr, Dodie Fayette, Dudley Moore, James Coburn. Yeah, so um, Uncle James, please. Uncle James. Um, <laughs> no, so um, James Coburn, he was in The Great Escape and Magnificent Seven, but Oscar I just... Oscar winner. Yes. And he would say, like, yeah, my friend Steve. And my sister would go, I think that's McQueen. I think he means Steve McQueen. <laughs> but, yeah, I was really interested in their relationship because what fascinated me about it, and, again, I've only realised that in the process of writing the book, that she was the first... Because I grew up in the 70s, a little older than this one, and um, I... No, I've just had more work. <laughs> it's great, by the way. <laughs> um, I was just conscious that their relationship was different to a lot of the others because, again, I think that there's less the case now, but back then, the women of that generation, I think, you know, my mum's generation, and probably your mum's to a lesser degree because she's younger, but just that sense of having to tread around men a bit. And Mm -hmm. Lindsay just didn't do that. And she would just speak to him in this way. She'd be like, James, do that, that. And I'd think, he's a movie star. This is a terrible idea. You can't speak to him like this. But um, it was like they were two independent people that had been brought together. And, yeah, she was um, actually quite an important role model for me, I think, Lindsay. She was, you know, she'd say brilliant things like that. She had this transatlantic accent and the, she was very glamorous. She'd wander around in this sort of long white coat like Cruella de Vil. And <laughs> she'd come into the house, you know, my mother would say, do you mind if I smoke? And she'd say, I'd rather you crapped on the carpet, but sure, go ahead. <laughs> 
she would just and he'd go oh she, she just like slammed me <laughs> so she was um but she was incredible yeah i love her and then when her relationship ended with james nothing changed for her her friends were the same uh her life was the same you wrote she didn't seem diminished by the removal of james's unquestionable power and status her life remained intact yeah and I think, you know, we have lots of different friends and our path seems to be an unusual one, but I love that. And you talk about all those who wanted to live a life that was based on being more than an adjunct to someone else. Yeah, I think that was true. And it was funny because I know now we used to always talk about Lindsay and mm-hmm. I think the narrative was always, she's impossible. She's a nightmare. And as a child, you absorb that. And that was very much how people talked about her. And it's only as I'm older, I think... <laughs> Megan, I mean, come on. I was coming to the big conclusion. <laughs> she, it's only now I'm older that I've thought, was she a nightmare or was she just asking, standing up for herself? And there was an interesting story about her. that there was Again, there was a pop singer in the 70s called Gilbert O'Sullivan and he got ripped off by his manager. There was a notorious manager. Where's she gone? She won't go. Shall I go and get her? Maggie. No, 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 no. He, he was, was ripped off by his manager. He was ripping loads of people off and he didn't rip Lindsay off. Ah, Apparently Sharon Osbourne went to the bathroom in Lindsay's suitcase because she was such a nightmare to deal with. Uh, Sharon Osbourne thought she was a nightmare. Yeah, so there you go. That tells you a lot. (laughs) Wow. Um, So back to you, Emily, learning to be transformative and uh, always fit into whatever situation you found yourself in. You're a child actress. Yes. And is it true that your mother turned down an offer to play Meryl Streep's daughter in a film? Yeah, and I'm so fine with it. Um, no. <laughs> no big deal. Um, no, do you know what? It was really weird, that, because as I was older, it was just a bit of a shock, and, and she did tell me, my sister told me, she told my sister, and Rach was just having an argument, this is my sister Rachel with my mum, and she just said, I must have been about 30, and Rach said... Well, it's like when you used to get all those parts and, you know, you got that job in a French left-handed woman playing Meryl Streep's daughter and mum turned it down. And I'm like, yeah, what? <laughs> and it was just, oh, my God. And so then you end up having this ridiculous family row, which ends with me saying, you know, I could have had Meryl Streep on my speed dial. Um, <laughs> but I actually think a friend of mine, Tony, a, sort of, a, a friend in journalism said, yeah, but you would have been an absolute fucking nightmare. <laughs> and I said, but I'm in a nightmare anyway and I haven't got the money. So... <laughs> I think probably it was the right thing for me because I think as I've got older, I've realised, you know, it's acting probably wouldn't have been right for my personality. And she did me a favour, but I do think it was a complicated thing to find out, if I'm honest, all that. What's another page in the book of your family dynamic? Because she didn't turn down the role because she thought she was helping you. No, I think she did it. No, I mean, it's funny. She, she, I think she did it ostensibly because she had this idea, and again, this happens a lot in families, that without realising it, I always think you have a script, essentially. And parents decide, you know, you hear it with families, and I'm very conscious when someone says, she's good as gold, he's a nightmare, he's the bright one, she's the pretty one, or, you know, this happens. We can't help it. We do it. And I think the role was black swan and white swan with me and my sister. And she was angelic and she was good and, you know, and I was just messy and rebellious. And so I think she had this idea that that would upset Rach. And, of course, Rach said to me years later, she went, I didn't give a shit. You know, she really didn't care. So, I, but it was, that was an odd hurdle to overcome. And like I say now, 
I feel compassion for my mum because I also think she was an actress. Things haven't gone so well for her, you know, and then you've got an agent calling saying, um, yes, the eight-year-old there, please. (laughs) So I understand that. Well, there's a passage in the book about that and about Rachel. We should speak about Rachel before we have uh, the interval that I loved uh, because I think it's so beautiful about Rachel. And what I love so much in the book is I didn't know Rachel. I hear about Rachel from you, but also you this is all pretty recent. Well. I do love her. Um, and you write, Rachel's designated role was that of unconditionally adored, grateful heroine. As our family journeyed through gasoline alley, throwing lit matches, she walked behind, smothering each blaze before it spread out of control. There was a twist to the adoration we all felt for her, though. She was simultaneously up on a pedestal, but perceived to be fragile, at risk of underappreciation. If I got a good school report or compliment, there was often a whispered suggestion that we play it down. Yeah. No, there was very much that sense. And it's, again, it's only in adult life that I've realised I've tended, I tended to do that. I think when that happens to you in childhood and you get a sense of standing back, it's like it's only, it was therapy when a therapist sits there and says, yeah, you were deputy editor, you were a sidekick, you were, and I was like, oh yeah. <laughs> like, like second in command suited me. So I had this sense of, I, I don't know, I'd inherited the look at me, Jean, which you've got. Yeah, that's you know, I have a dread. thing the look at me, Jean, and I think we all know it. Sometimes one of a partner is the look at me person. I'll tell the story, okay? Um, and I think if you have the look at me, Jean, you need some sort of an outlet for it, either a job or... And I think I had that, but what I didn't have was... Uh, I didn't feel I had a right to, to sort of demand attention. Like, I used to think, well, I need to steal it occasionally. Um, so yeah, so but learning and actually Frank Skinner, who I do want to talk about, because I really think Frank was the person who actually had sort of slightly changed my life, really, um, because he just sort of had faith in me. And it just takes one person. It's not Lady Gaga. It just takes one person. Yeah. <laughs> just one. Um, imagine if I did that to Frank. He'd say, "Oh, shut up." Um, but I'm it just glad takes... to hear you're not fucking Bradley Cooper behind his wife's back. No. What's the, what's the deal with that? What's the deal with that? That poor woman has to sit there going like that while they're sort of smothering you. I mean, that's awful. What would you do in that situation? Uh, Take the money and continue not to care. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't think Irina Shakes coming out with any beautifully written books. Maybe she is. I I don't get the sense that she cares. She's at the Oscars. How else is she going to get to the Oscars? Yeah, you're right. Victoria's Secret just closed 58 shops. <laughs> I love that you know that. <laughs> 58. I mean, so Frank's going to... Yeah, so Frank, so I think with Frank, I just really had the sense that he, he just sort of took a bit of a risk on me, you know, and I think I was known as kind of, well, you were saying at the top of this, this sort of chat, the funny girl at the party, you know, the girl that would come in and sort of make conversation and say, is everyone okay? Has everyone got a drink? Because... I felt that was enough, and that's a, that's a role that I could play. And it was Frank who sort of just called me and said, look, I've been offered a radio show. And I just, I felt like vomiting. I just thought, I can't do this, I can't do this. And he's just really, he's a bit pushy, and he just had a faith in me. And I think when someone has faith in you, that's, that's really, um, so I like that Meg keeps making those noises at all the sort of poignant moments. <laughs> um, I told you she can't stop. <laughs> she's trained um, but I think when someone has faith in you, it's just infectious, that, isn't it? And you, you sort of think, oh, maybe it's okay, and maybe I can do this. And I'm so grateful to him for that, because I was terrible when I first did it. I mean, I can't... Someone gave me advice and said, you will, 
I don't know if you felt this with stand-up, but it takes you a while to sound like yourself. Mm. Is that true? Oh, I think it's so crucial to have an authentic voice in anything that you do. And unfortunately, you run around with uh, all this unbridled sexual power when you're 20 or 22 and everybody gives you maybe attention or opportunities and puts you in situations when you don't have authenticity and you don't have courage mm-hmm. like you do now and it, you, there's just no shortcut to it. All of a sudden somewhere in your 30s or 40s you step into your authentic voice but it is absolutely essential in, in this yeah. for certain so you feel like Frank saw that in you. I think Frank just had that. He, he just sort of said... You know, it's funny because I knew I wasn't great to begin with, but he just stuck with me. And I think I was just lucky because on radio you get those breaks. You know, if you go on a panel show and you're not great the first time, then that's it. But I think with radio, you know, they do, we just got to make our mistakes. And no, I was listening, like three men in Birmingham and a whip it. It was like, it was fine. <laughs> so I could just sort of do what I wanted and thought, oh, that man in Birmingham will be hung over. He won't care. And so, um, yeah, but he's, it's, it's been... And I've learned a lot from him. Actually, and I've learned a lot from him, which again I mentioned in the book about sort of being honest. And, you know, he always says this weird stuff, Frank. He says, you know, you can... What's that thing he says about the funeral? He says, you know, you can spend your whole life trying to be liked, but at the end of the day, the, si- the size of the crowd at your funeral will largely be dictated by the weather. <laughs> and it's kind of true, you know, and I sort of remember that. It's like, look, just, just be who you are anyway, you know. So, but... I think there are, to go gaga again, there are people like that that you meet, sort of mentors, and he's really been one for me. And you have as well, actually. Um, so, no, but you really have. <laughs> but you really have, just because... I haven't. All I'm doing this entire time is trying to keep my vag in. <laughs> and I don't... You ruined my talk. I doubt... Because, so nice. because we have to pierce the earnestness. We both do that. Oh, yes, do we do. Okay. Um, because I don't think Frank Skinner, you know, they just, they don't have to wear stuff like this. How's that? Can I put I you on good. permanent badge watch? <laughs> don't cover his eyes. I need him. I'm you just say to... if you can see anything. Can you say? Because I do not wear knickers. Um, how are we doing for time, by the way? No, I do. No, I do. Oh, no, we're, fine. we're fine. We're absolutely fine. fine. Okay. So um, there are many... There are many Frankisms in the book. I love that you're so close with Frank Skinner. What I noticed about you straight away, and you've transformed my life. Go on. Um, Go on. You look at that so arrogant. Go on. Tell me about how I've transformed your life. No, and this book will be transformative to so many people uh, just looking for that extra push, I think, because all these uh, men and women, but mostly the, the men that I've known for a long time in entertainment, it's so amazing to see how you are one of the lads, 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 in a big way. They, re- they respect you. They include you. You're not a threat to their partners. Their partners love you. You're out with the girls. You're out with the boys. You are very good in any situation, dog family or otherwise, comedian or pop star. I guess that's from hanging out with Lindsay DePaul and Ringo Starr and all these different people throughout your life. Yeah. I think, um, I don't know, I think you just fit in anywhere. You seem so quietly confident and serene all the time. And I know that... There was a time in your life when things got hard, and we'll talk about that yeah. after the interval. But um, when, when you get a drink, when you get a yeah, that's all I have. Day drinking, the best kind. She loves day drinking. But when I first decided that we were going to be friends mutually at the Wink Murder Party, um, 
I loved that you weren't panicked about being single. I had just been through a breakup and I just bought my first property. And when you and I spoke about these, these really meaningful pieces of property and transform and putting rose gold and brushed copper and dark Scandinavian florals and all these things, uh, creating space or owning space. Again, it's about authenticity, but yeah. in a real, like, you know, literal sense in our case. I, I loved that. I loved having a girl crush on someone who I thought was so sophisticated and so clever. Some of this book, I had to look it up. Like, <laughs> I didn't even know that, that, that Gandhi rang Hitler, wrote him a letter. I didn't know ring these him. He didn't WhatsApp well, him. I don't he know. He sent him a letter. He said, dear friend... <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't call Hitler a friend, but he did. He said, friend, I'm writing to you for the sake of humanity. Yeah. But that's my weird family. That's because that's just, there's probably stuff that you know from your family no. that I wouldn't know. No. I sh- <laughs> and you like football, and you've got a I new do. football show coming out in Sky. Yes. They've hired zero female comedians, just male comedians and you. So you're obviously doing something right. <laughs> you like football, and you're funnier than all of us. How do you do it? No, that's not true. But I do, I think it's interesting what you say about the the fitting in thing. And I did, you know, I think for a while, someone once said, called me the comic whisperer. And I didn't know how to take that, like the dog whisperer, which is, but I think it just, you know, in a weird way, I hope what's happened now is something that was possibly a bit of a negative to me when I was younger, which was this sense of being a chameleon, just wearing too many coats and not having a sense of myself, really. Now, now that I've sort of worked on that and been through some tough times, I feel actually, no, it's a good thing. It means that it's about um, being able to fit into any... It's being portable, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You need to be portable. So, well, look, um, you can be a dog family and be portable. Some of these dogs can be very portable, quite literally. Um, we're going to have a break quite shortly. Let's talk about Giggle. Giggle. Giggle's not here today, but... Um, he, Giggle was my, he is my sister's dog, actually. And it's interesting. I really stop myself talking in the past tense sometimes when I talk about her. Because Jane Goldman, who's, as you say, is my childhood best friend. and a, um, She's doing well. She's done well for herself. Yeah. Um, what's your best friend doing? Oh, she's doing like, Game of Thrones. Oh, great. I thought I'd written a book. I thought I'd done all right. <laughs> um, but um, she, yeah, it's interesting. She said something really important to me. She said, when my sister passed away, she said, I'm not going to say passed away, but she died, okay? She died. And she said, um, she's still your sister. She's always your sister. So, you know, you get that sense of losing your identity and actually you don't have to say she was my sister. She is my sister. Sorry, that's like a language policing thing, which I've now involved you in and wasted your time, but there you go. Um, what was your question? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you read ADHD, sorry. Rachel getting Giggle. Yes. And you say, Giggle was far more than a dog. He was the embodiment of the path in the woods Rach had chosen. The one signposted National Trust Picnic Area, in contrast to the one I had taken, marked Danger, you're in bear country. Yeah, yeah, it's true. She, well, she got Giggle, and to me, that's, you know, my obsession with the dog families. That was just the full stop at the end of what I felt was her sentence, whereas... I don't know where I was, somewhere around word three in some mad, crazy, long paragraph. And she, um, it was just those beats of convention. And there was something about the dog. I always thought of them as like the little beating heart, the center of a nuclear family. And he's a, he is a half pug, half chihuahua, a chug. Um, they're adorable. They're so lovely. I mean, he's not aged so well, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> he looked really cute, but he's got really wonky teeth, which is cute on a puppy, sort of gruffalo. Yeah. But it's now like... The underbite. 
Yeah. It's a bit kind of, maybe get them fixed, maybe. I'll um, send them to my guy. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, but he's adorable, and actually I really did... It was the first experience I had. I'd always loved dogs and the concept of them, but it was the first direct experience I'd had of them being comforting when I lost my sister and my parents. And it was just that thing of other people tread around you a bit. They try so hard, but it's tough. I've done it. You're sort of, oh, shall I call them? Shall I text? I don't know. And when it's a grandparent, it's odd. It's easier to get in touch with someone. When it's a sister, it's like, I'll just leave it. And what I sort of loved about Giggle was that I'd just be crying or upset and he wouldn't care. He just, there was no subtlety with dogs, which I quite like. They just throw themselves at you and start licking you. And it just felt really restorative. I thought there was a very uncomplicated purity and simplicity about the love that you get from a dog. And I just, he brought me over, Giggle lured me over to the dog side, as I call it. And, um, and then I met him. I know, he's just the best. Well, I'm so glad you got Ray. Okay, so we're going to ask you at the interval to ask some questions, but I'll tell you this before we go, because it's all been very light and all about your amazing family, and it's all in the book, and it's so funny, and there are so many references in here that made me a smarter person, and I just laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and cried and cried, but not yet. And um, (laughs) um, that one chapter about Giggle and Rachel's rom-com by Richard Curtis Life, it's written like a a screenplay. Oh, yeah, I wrote a lot like screenplay. This book is film one day I just loved it it's so funny up until now but I'll say something uh, not sad I find it uplifting before we go to break if you don't mind unless there's anything you would like to close no, with Emily go for it. okay I'm just happy so sitting there with my t-shirt I mean we're all getting the t-shirt okay um, my aunt is a midwife and so she's seen a lot of people come into the world and she's seen a lot of people leave the world as I know you have seen a lot of people leave the world and she definitively concludes that something comes in when you're born and something definitely goes out when you die. She believes in a soul very much and she's been in uh, medicine in Ireland for several, several, several years. And she had a dream that she was coming to the end of her life and her legs were getting heavy and she didn't know why, but in the dream she was certain that she was coming to the end of her life. And she reached this place where uh, she was told that she could put her energy into different people that had touched her throughout her life. And it was a system of balances and she couldn't overtake someone with her energy, but she could choose the people that she loved. And that energy obviously cannot be destroyed and it would never die, but it would Mm. go on in those people. And um, I believe that when she said that to me, I think it makes, it's my own like making sense of death. And I think I would love to firmly believe, and I hope that you do when you talk about the past and the present and Rachel, um, of course she was the one. She was the person for you. She was your best friend. She was your sister. Yeah. I think it makes so much sense that she, you have become a dog family because loads of Rachel mm. now like lives on in you. And now you have Ray and so you nice. have that family. And I just, I can't wait to hear more about Rachel and about getting Ray and about that grief. and how you overcame it. So um, let's hear it, please, for the first section with Emily Dean. Hi. Welcome back, Emily Dean, everyone. Thank you. Well, I know that's from you now. Then not be rude. (laughs) Can we give a shout-out to Catherine's daughter, Violet, by the way? She's not mine. 
I just want to share her because she's oh, my well favourite done, child and the whole oh it's terrible, sis. I'm gonna get in such trouble. She's not used to it. I don't let her out. I know. <laughs> I really don't. Uh, I'm quite like your mother, aren't I? I'm like, sorry, darling, you didn't get it. Anyway. <laughs> you should have done that. Darling. We're busy. Yeah, I just can't bring myself to smoke like our mother's yeah. dead. Um, your mother is dead. Yeah. Tell us about that. <laughs> I mean, you could have broken it to me a bit of an easier way. I just thought, um, let's yeah, get right let's into it. Let's just go it. straight in. It's the grief section, and yes. you've done so formidably uh, with the moving on and healing, and it's, it's going to touch all of us one day if it hasn't already. Thank you for being here if you've been through some terrible grief. Uh, Emily, what happened in five years, everybody? Three. Three. Oh, my God. Um, all right. Well, it was kind of, yeah, you get sort of into the grief Olympics, like Trump's life was three years, they all died. But I, yeah, it was just the speed. And I always say, look, this happens to all of us. Quite literally, it will happen to all of us. But experiencing death is, is never great, but it's an inevitability, as we all know. I think what was tough about this, and I suppose what was slightly, you know, out of the normal was just the speed at which it happened. Mm. So, and also typical my family, they all went in the wrong bloody order, you know, mm. <laughs> right? My sister goes first and then my mother and then my father. And that was, yeah, so it was, it was sort of, I think I say in the book, death became like a season, you know, it was just an inevitability. It was like, oh, right, it's another one, another one, another one. And it felt like it was the box set of grief. I just binged on it, you know, and I didn't, I didn't stagger it out. So. That has inevitably, I think, that has long-term effects on you because you're lurching from... You're, you're in permanent adrenaline and crisis mode. You're going, oh, I'm just dealing with that. Oh, shit, another one. Oh, God, another one. And you don't get a chance to fully process the feelings you have. You know, my sister's death was very complicated because it's a life interrupted. You know, it's not the sort of natural order of things, essentially. Expect to bury your parents. But your sister, you think you'll get a bit longer, you know. So... Yeah, it was, it was tough, obviously. But I think, strangely, out of it, has, there have been a series of quite big life changes, I think. And, yeah, it's the, it's the rock bottom thing. You just have to start again. You start from scratch. You think, right, I've got nothing. Okay, well, what's the worst that can happen? It already did. So I love that in your book when uh, all of a sudden you seem emboldened by this idea that it's the worst thing that could happen, has already happened, what else can happen? And when someone asked you why you were crying, you said, well, anytime I'm crying, if you see me crying, I'm mm. crying about Rachel. That's yeah. why I'll be crying. I like new Emily. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's obviously tragic. And I think reading the book as a talented, beautiful young mother myself. Um, <laughs> no, but there's a... There's such, uh, I wouldn't call it an undertone, a massive overtone of uh, injustice that mm. this young woman with a 10-year-old and a 1-year-old, yeah. you don't think, I mean, I would hope that women like that are invincible. I would never dream that they could go from being at dinner with you just shortly before Christmas and being dead in three weeks. Yeah. And I definitely have learned in this country that... Um, British people, and I love you so much, they, they seem to be super hesitant to ask questions. Yeah. And I think the worst thing that you can do, for me anyway, when someone is grieving, is to look away, to ignore them, and not to give them space to talk about that grief. So yeah. tell us about what, whatever you're comfortable saying about how Rachel died, yeah. and then how should we approach someone in our own lives who's had some train wreck experience like that? 
Well, it's interesting because I agree with what you say. And um, I was only conscious of that. Really, I suppose, when it happens to you, because it was exactly how I behaved with other people, if I'm honest, and we all do it. It's, it's things like... There was one thing I noticed, which was so sweet and so well-meaning, but people would often cite... Um, in order to be empathetic, you'd say, my sister died. And, I, and, that, and it would, nine out of ten times, people would say, well, I know this because my sister's cousin went through it, or my, you know, or it would be more immediate, or my grandmother went through it, or my mother went through it. And you feel so unreasonable. But at those moments, I would feel, I can't take on your story as well. My narrative space can only inhabit this, and I can't share this space with you right now. And I know what you're trying to do is empathetic, but... I don't want to hear about this. And you feel awful, but that's the reality. So I think I just learned that. I thought, just listen. When someone's talking, it's not like, oh, this happened to me. It all comes from empathy. But actually, the best thing is just to be quiet and say, okay, tell me what happened. And I think also, I heard a really good thing. Is it Cheryl? I can never say her name. Sandberg. She keeps changing it. She, I oh, know, right? Sorry. Rip, She'll be on the run soon. Um, <laughs> not going well. Um, she... I heard her Desert Island Discs, which I don't know if you, anyone, you guys heard, but it was incredibly moving. And, you know, there were some amazing things in it about just bringing her friends and saying, just, just come, just get here. And um, she also said something, which is a great tip, I think, which is never ask someone, how are you? Because for a time, someone asking me that, it felt such a huge question. I couldn't even answer it. I thought, I don't want to burden you with my pain. Get, well, I'm shit. I'm going to be shit for a while longer. But you don't want to hear that because it's a British social nice, nice tea, how are you? So you just say, how are you today? Mm. And as soon as someone would ask me that, I'd think, I can answer that, thank God, because actually I'm all right today, or I'm not so great. So yeah, little things like that are kind of really useful, just the sort of navigating it, because it's hard to know what to do, isn't it? Yeah. There were some beautiful parts about even, uh, uh, was it intensive care or mm. palliative care, when no one spoke, it was very dog-like, everyone lived in the moment, no one spoke about tomorrow. Yeah. And I know that your family changed the, the patterns of their language not to speak about months away or days away even. Yes. And I very much had that sense. You know, it's really weird, isn't it? Because we've all seen it on telly. You've watched, you know, um, Grey's Anatomy or whatever. Or that's where I got all my death experiences from. And you'd see people in, in, in sort of hospital beds and they'd say these things. And it would be, it's okay, Mama. I love you. And then they'd slip away, a little bit of pink on the cheeks, maybe, nice blush, mm. a matte blush. And, and of course, it's nothing like that. You know, I'm sure there are people here who've experienced that. And what was really strange for me is that lack of an ending. There's no full stop. It just happens. And I had a real sense that when my sister died, I thought, I can't say goodbye to her. Because if I sit down and give her the big Grey's Anatomy speech, I'm sort of seizing her moment. I'm saying, you're going, so I'm going to... And I thought, well, I wouldn't want to hear that if I was her. What, someone's, you sit there, can't talk, and someone's telling you you're going to die. I'd, I wanted her to feel she was just going to sleep and we were just chatting. Because mm. I thought, maybe that's a calmer way to go. So, yeah, we just chatted about ridiculous things. And, you know, I would tell her about the doctor who I made a fool of myself in front of. And I knew she'd love stuff like that, you know. So, yeah, it felt... Again, we were talking on her about being authentic, and that really taught me is... I had a moment with her as well when she was... We just shared a moment of laughter, which it was one of our last moments together, actually. And I didn't talk about that in the book. I think just because it was ours and it felt intimate. And I don't mind sharing it with you guys because you're all like friends, aren't you? Um, but she... We took the piss out of my mum's clothes. And it was just with a look. And it was something we'd always done. 
And my mum was sitting there and she... I mean, she was an actress, so she dressed... I mean, it, it was an absolute mess. But she had on a black sort of shift dress with big square pockets. It was... It was like a sort of someone from the 60s dressing from the future. Ah. That's, that, well, that, that's what she looked like. And I thought, well, we're in intensive care. I mean, I can't say anything, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to. Cause... And my sister just looked at me and I said, I said, so. I said, I'm, well, the real tragedy is, of course, mum's outfit. <laughs> <laughs> and do you know what? She, she looked up. And she looked at me, and it makes me cry thinking about it. She just looked at me and she smiled, and I was like, oh, my God, yes, this is brilliant. We bonded over Mum's terrible clothes. This is so brilliant. But I'll always have that moment of just thinking, wow, that was, that was just really special. Because yeah. it was funny, and it was her, and it just gave me that real sense that she, was, she still had that humour, which it was our thing, and she still had it. How good of you to always be there? I knew you were going there every day. And um, she was out of it a lot of the time at mm. the end. And um, I love some of the strong moments that it brought out on you. I think you are an excellent custodian of <laughs> the end of life. Not only have you written this beautiful tribute, none of my sisters can even read. <laughs> but also, <laughs> you said to the nurse who said, no, she's had too much diazepam. Oh, yeah. I went you a bit said mad. she's got cancer. Give her the fucking drug. <laughs> I sounded like That's some Scarface, like Al Pacino. I was really embarrassed. I went, just give her the drugs. Like, give and, her the fucking drugs. Yeah, I did say give her the fuck. I swore at the nurse, yeah. yeah. I, was, I was trying to pretend I didn't, but I did. <laughs> but it's weird, that sense of, you know, I don't have children, because I forgot. But um, <laughs> it's funny, because I imagine it's how you are over Violet. You know, it's that sense of almost... Um, she just poked her head around. Yeah, we talked about you. Um that sense of rationale almost goes out the window. And I felt like that with my sister. I just felt, I don't care. I just want her to have her meds. And mm. I felt utterly focused on that. And so, yeah, it was, it was... But it was sort of... I don't know, again, I'm sure people have experienced loss in this room, but there's no good or bad death, is there? You know, some people have a year or two years with, with you know, family members and friends. And in our case, it was three weeks. It was... I feel a bit fluey, and then she suddenly... Three and a half weeks later, she died. And it was like, yeah, it was a week before, which was a week after her daughter's first birthday. So that was just, it was tough, you know. But, um, you know, it's... And then my parents died not, yeah, there was sort of... My mum got motor neuron disease and she died pretty soon after that. And then my dad died, which was complicated because I was kind of estranged from him. And that was... But again, with both of them, I felt... I feel now, I just feel such love for them. And it's taken me a long time to get to that place. But, but you know what I mean? I love that they were different. They were other... They were weird. You're a bit weird. I'm a bit weird. And that's what I love. I embrace other now. I like that. Yeah, well, I like that, you know, you've found peace on the other side, even though both of them, your mother and your father, after Rachel's death, still... Uh, my dad is alive, but he was just here, left yesterday. Mm. The negging of that generation goes on and on and on. <laughs> your dad was saying, your her dad is hilarious. He's just been so rude at every chance he gets all the time. But even as your parents <laughs> were dying, they managed to say some pretty rude things to you. So yeah, my very... dad, yeah, they negged me on the deathbed, which isn't great. Um, but um, I think there was just that sense, I don't think they realised it. And I think because my dad always spoke in that, you know, he spoke in that very... Um, overly honest way to children. Your dad had his finger on the pulse of what was going on. 
That's what I'm getting Why did he say anything? Come on. Listen, he did. I'm sure he did. He was telling six-year-olds. He was telling everyone he could. (laughs) (laughs) It's not his fault. No one paid attention back then. No one listened. But I think that sort of extended to his... I've got, you know, in a way, I see that in a benevolent way. That she mm-hmm. he said the wrong things. You know, when my sister was dying, he walked in. He started going about a Hockney exhibition. Going, I mean, a Hockney's graphic strengths. And I was like, it's a deathbed. Stop! It's not a late night arts review show. <laughs> he was. He was going. I mean, it's a. It's on until April. Yeah, she's going to be dead. So why would you want to know about an exhibition in April, you weirdo? But I sort of have an odd. I know this sounds weird, but I think, of course, that was going to be that way. Yeah. You know, the man said he's commonly considered to be a paedophile. I was sitting, so he was always going to get it a bit wrong. Um, but I sort of want to remember the things he got right, which was, you know, just that sense of his energy and his eccentricity and, you know, all that fabulous stuff that made him special and all my family. Well, they were definitely authentic. We can say that about each person in your family. Yes, this I is like true. I like that very much. Um, then you had a obviously really tough time. What I loved learning about was uh, some of the Hoffman process and when yeah. you said, everyone is guilty, no one is to blame. Yes. Did that have a big part in your forgiveness? Yes, yeah, so everyone in this room is guilty, souls. But um, the good news is no one is to blame. And that was a really powerful thing. And a lot of people say that. And what that's about is looking at, Again, I don't know if people have had experiences, you know, complicated. We all have complicated relationships with family members and friends and loved ones. And what that sentence teaches you or that phrase is that, you know, we're all underneath it all. Everyone's sort of struggling, you know, and you have this thing. One of the things I did on this process is it, I had to sort of imagine my parents as kids, which sounds really weird. No. But you have a photo of them as children. And it's really odd when you're angry with someone and you look at a picture of them as a two-year-old child, you just see their vulnerability and you see that you just feel a kinship with them and you can't be angry in the same way I can't be angry with him. So that was really important to me. And I do try and remember that, you know, and I sort of say... I mean, it's something I try and remember. You know, it's hard. I still snap at the Ocado man or whatever, you know. <laughs> but then I sort of remind myself afterwards and, you know, you still mess up. Not perfect. But I found that important just... Also, looking at your own behaviour and taking your own responsibility because another thing they say on this process I did, it's a seven-day retreat in Ireland and, I mean, it's terrifying. You get there, take away your laptop. It's like Orange is the New Black. It was yeah. literally, <laughs> oh, my God, I'm in, in prison. Take away your laptop, your phone, no books, no reading nothing and you say but but how can I have nothing to read with and they say what terrifies you about being with your own thoughts <laughs> um so but it was it was life-changing and I I did learn a lot and I think the other thing I've learned is that you can't change you know, I said to the guy who who ran the thing at one point I said um but sometimes people it's actually someone else in our group who said it he said sometimes people are just absolute shits you know, this whole thing about recognise your own behaviour. What if someone's horrible? And he said, well, that's true, but you can't change other people. Mm. But you say so you change your response. I mean, you know, that's the idea. Well, then you felt better. Not, you know, it's a work in progress, but you felt yeah. better enough to take the leap and become a dog family. What made you get Ray? You. Me. 
Yes. No, I wasn't doing that so that the answer would be me. Yes, you were. <laughs> you bought me some good slogan sweatshirts. We love the slogan sweatshirt. She's got me a great one called Decision Maker because a man turned up at Catherine's house and it wouldn't turn up. Sounds a bit sinister, but... Um, they turn up. It was the decorator. <laughs> and the decorator said to you, when will the decision maker be home? Isn't that true? I said, she's oh, at I school know. for two more hours. So. <laughs> <laughs> you better hurry up. She's a Tory. She will call home office on us both. Um, <laughs> she um, So and you uh, had to put on a sweatshirt. So why not go around with Ray, But you didn't realize that Ray and Megan. Look at them just gazing upon each other. Look at this. Isn't it cute? I don't know if you can see them. They're so mad. Like, I always call their relationship frozen for dogs. It's like frozen for Shih Tzus, isn't it? Look at them. They just stare at each other. I know. It's so, so cute. So basically, I interviewed Catherine for the podcast that I do for The Times. and I Walking the Dog yeah. podcast. Are you listening to it? It's so wonderful. Yes, great. And I'd already walked up to her and said in a rather tragic Alan Partridge way, can I be your friend? <laughs> and then um, I was inspired by your life and I was inspired by Meg and I got Raymond. And I just, I'd sort of just you know, never committed to anything in my life. But as soon as I saw him... But you got him by accident in a way. So you saw Megan, you thought, oh, little dog, fine. Family, no husband, fine. But um, I have a girlfriend called Elizabeth. Her daughter, Matilda, is Violet's best friend. They were born on the same day in the same hospital. And we didn't know that for several years. We figured it out backtracking. So you and I have these... They have the same mother, these dogs from the same place in Romsey... Yeah. The same family, the same mother, and we did it by accident. Yeah. And so she, I mean, I don't know, they've got a different, it's the same mother, isn't it? It's different yeah, dads. different dads. I don't know, Ray's dad was, I think he was a bit of a no-gooder, no if know, I'm honest. I think he was. I think he was a bit of a one-night stand. We all have dads who are a bit bon vivant. You yeah, know? this is true. Well, I so, certainly did. Um, so you got Ray. We're so gonna I got ask Ray, and then I just... Um, so tell me about Ray, getting okay. Ray. Dog therapy. So Ray, yeah, he just kind of changed my life, really. And as soon as I got him, I just thought, this is the best thing I've ever done. Why didn't I get this years ago? Because I, it was just so powerful. Just, I mean, literally this morning, I did the radio show this morning. I had to get up at half five. And <laughs> What's happened? Well, he wasn't playing. Oh, he had her bone. Okay. So you do, do you know what radio. I love is that she wears the trousers. Look at him. He's so henpecked. Um, I just, yeah, I mean, I woke up this morning, so I was saying, and he's just staring. Oh, imagine that. Imagine waking up to that face, just staring at you like a sort of crazy Ewok. It's amazing. So it, it really was the transition from, you know, after I'd lost my family, I used to wake up and honestly hit the snooze button. I would just think, I don't want to get up. I just, you know, again, I'm sure people have experienced that, that feeling of just depression, and it's what it was. And then getting him was also, all oh, right, I've got to feed him. I've got to look after myself. I can, I can not feed myself and live in sweatpants. Sorry, Carl Lagerfeld, um, <laughs> for the next couple of years. But, you know, I can't do that to him. So it forced me to get out of the house. It forced me to physically have a walk, which sounds like a sort of naff thing that people say in women's magazines. Have a walk, meet no, some people. It's very Coco group. Chanel. But, yeah, no, it does. It clears your head and I leave my phone. Home, so that's been good. But it also... I think what I've really learned from dogs, and that is the sort of science of them, is just that they literally live in the moment. And because they do that, it really encourages you to do the same, you know. So I'll shout at him. I'm just trying not to shout at him because he's so lovely. But um, oh. I d- look, he performs as well. Oh, come on. Come on, we're talking about you. Look so at come me, Jean. <laughs> but I, li- I realised that... Um, 
give mummy a kiss. Yeah. <laughs> but I realised that, you know, I've learned that from him. It's just that thing where he's... Dogs are a bit like that. They're kind of like, oh, no, she's angry because I did a wee. Oh, we're going outside. Oh, but, you know, they're a bit sort of ADHD, yeah. which I think is a great way to be. You know, they embrace every moment. They don't live in the past. And actually, that was an interesting thing I discovered about grief as well, is that, you know, dogs... Because I found myself typing into Google, do dogs mourn their owners, which was one of the weirder moments in my life. <laughs> and I was like, Siri, do dogs... No, Emily. <laughs> um, but, yeah, essentially... They do, but they don't experience mourning like us. They see it as more like, they're just like, oh, they're going to come back. Yeah. So, yeah, he's been, he's just totally transformed my life. I've, and he brought, he's made me meet loads of interesting people and he's, what, he's just changed my life. Look, someone just sneezed. Ray, Ray doesn't like that. We don't allow sneezing in our house. Um, he's on alert. He wants to help. He's on alert. And you took Ray to the cemetery and introduced him to Rachel. Yeah, weird. But I mean, I kind of loved doing it because it was so weird and so my family. And I sort of thought, I can't believe I'm bringing... I kind of think of him as my saviour. He's my hero. He came and saved me. And I thought, this is typical me or my family, that my hero isn't the typical rom-com kind. I haven't got Hugh Grant, you know. I've got a weird Ewok creature in a Topshop raffia bag that I'm hiding. (laughs) Um... And yeah, we went, I took him to see my sister, and he's called Raymond because my sister was called Rachel. So I thought it would be a nod to her without being. Um, I interviewed Adam Hills, and he said, Oh, yeah, it's really nice. It's nice, but that being confrontational. <laughs> and um, I thought, Yeah, he's got a point about that. So I introduced him, and I honestly said, I said, Oh, Ray, this is Ray. I hope you don't think it's weird that I named a dog after you. <laughs> I mean, she couldn't answer, so you know what I'm going but yeah, it felt really special actually taking him to meet my family, and I, and I felt I'd love you know I just felt they would have been happy for me, and yeah, so it was lo- it was lovely. They would be happy for you. I really do believe that energy thing. You don't have to, but I believe that you're carrying all of them with you all the time, and you've ceased to be the sidekick, and you are now driving the bus of your family all around, and you have Ray. Um, do you want to say anything else before I ask these questions? No, I just wanted to thank everyone for coming here today. Yeah, thank because you so much. It's been really, um, you know, it's a challenging book to write, I'm not going to lie, and I thought I was just going to sit down and do a Carrie Bradshaw. Anyway, my family died, and then I got a dog, and it, but I just couldn't, and I spilt my guts a bit, and it's very, you know, it's exposing, and you feel vulnerable, and I've had brilliant people who, I'm afraid I know this isn't, but I have to mention who's my editor, Arena, who's been amazing, and sort of like a therapist, really, um, and my agent, Kath, and I think it, that's been really important, that support, women, female support, you see. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a tough slog, but I feel so today, being with all you guys here and just talking and being with one of my best friends, I feel really happy and I just feel yeah, I'm I'm just thrilled. So thank you all so much for coming. <laughs> Do you want to, can I show you the trick I do? Yeah, do you okay. want me to play Lion King mm, music? Mm, 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 the circle of love. <laughs> oh, you didn't like that. He's adorable. Okay, Catherine's actually going to get the Lion King, King music. music. Should psych- we do questions? Yes, let's do questions. Um, I'm so pleased for you, so proud of you. The book is I need to come and give you a hug. It's very unprofessional. No, no, because they keep seeing Jimmy like- Carr doesn't do this. Aww. He doesn't do that. He goes, okay, Catherine. Um... Well, he, he does. Do. No, just kidding. My Jimmy um, Carr impression. Jimmy has the best answer. Anytime anybody asks him, 
because uh, you know what it's like, men and women working together. I don't know if yeah. anybody bothers you about working with Frank, but they no, also go, funnily enough. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> I love him, but you know. Um, <laughs> oh, never. So no. go on about They Jimmy. say to Jimmy, are you, are you um, romantically, are you sleeping with Rachel Riley? And he has the best answer. What he does goes, he say? Yeah, don't tell her though. <laughs> Hilarious. Um, <laughs> I love him. The best thing Jimmy ever said to me is when I said I'd taken up horse riding, you know, Ooh. and I was going through that thing again post loss where you're like, I'm going to do everything. I'm going to cut my hair, do horse riding. And your friend's like, oh God, what is it now? Frank was like, are you still going to buy a house in Deal? I was like, yes. Oh, no, no, I'm Deal. <laughs> I know, what was I doing? <laughs> and that, but I said to Jimmy, I'm doing horse riding. And he went, yeah, that's great, because there's a, where is it? I said, oh, and I told him where it was, which yeah. is in sort of, where's that? In Enfield, near Enfield. He went, that's great. I mean, there's a great spinal injuries unit up the road from there. <laughs> Thanks for harshing my mellow call. I think dealing with grief, I don't know, I mean, you're the expert after the box set, but hanging around yeah. with comedians and people who aren't afraid to ask you these very rude, bold-faced questions about yeah. what you've been through and make jokes, really inappropriate jokes and bad taste, yes. it does make it easier. I do think it does. And actually, I quite like that you know, I've had to say to Frank, because Frank's that, you know, obviously, he, he always goes for the punchline, but mm. he's also someone who's very sensitive and he worries. And he'll look at me and I'll say, it's okay, you can say what you want. It's fine, we can joke about it. You're going to read questions. I'm going to read First a question. One. Grief evolves. It doesn't get better day by day. What impact is your grief having right now? Oh, that's really good. Right now on this stage, whoever asked that. Voice. Um, I would say grief does evolve, and I think what's interesting about that question is, you know, that five stages of grief, which is the biggest bullshit. Sorry, Violet. It's. I just think it's irresponsible. I think it's wrong, and I really. It's one of the things I always say to people. You know, it's written in like Victorian times or something, and I mean, it was. It wasn't. It may as well have been. And I just think it's really important to remember it's it's not linear. It's I describe it's like a, it's waves. It's a tsunami, you know. And you just have bad days and good days. And today is a great day for the reasons I said earlier. I feel really happy, but I feel you will have bad days, you know. And it's like there are all these metaphors that you hear about it. And I said I did an interview with the Sunday Times recently, and I mentioned someone described it as being like glitter which is that sense that you clean it up and you'll just be sitting there and there's a little piece. It never quite... You can't get rid of it all. Um, and the weirdest times it would happen, I'd be sitting there with the radio show lot and I'd suddenly start crying and they'd say, what is it? And I'd say, I don't know. Oh, yeah, I think I, think I do know. So I would say, whoever said that, I think it does very much evolve. And, um, yes, I feel great today, but I might not tomorrow, you know, and that's okay. And it's just a, it's a matter of accepting that and knowing that there will be another day. So, yeah. I'm t glad today's a good day. Yeah. Um, are you ever going to try stand-up? No. No, I couldn't do it. That's no, your don't. job. I have, a no. I have a best friend who does it. I can, you do it. You do that. It's for me. Do you think... I want to um, ask you about that, but with the stand-up thing, yeah. do you... You say, no, don't do it. That's interesting. Would you... Do you think it's a hard... It's a hard job to do. Like, nope, do I was joking then. I just said it because no, you'd be so No, I know good. you were joking. I'm but I, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being boring and being serious now in terms of, do you think that it's... Like, you're quite tough, I think, but you're, she's actually like marshmallow and, uh, underneath. Nuh -uh. You are. <laughs> but do you think it's... Because I think you... I, I don't think I'm as tough as you. Like, some of the stuff that you have to deal with, and I've seen you take on well, men and... T take on how many men have you seen me? 
as soon as I said that, I thought I'm playing right into her hands. I didn't know um, you were there. No, I've seen you. <laughs> Other people. Um, I've seen you stand up for yourself a lot, and I found that really inspiring. Well, I've had some grief. I don't know how to write books, but I love. I think I've read a lot of Native American literature. Mm. Um, First Nations people, we see yeah. now. And um, the, the psychology of, of that was not to uh, push grief away, but to invite it into your life when it happens. Obviously, you don't want it to happen, but when it's coming, just to invite grief into your life and ask it what it has to teach you. And they say that people always come out of suffering better than they went in. So yeah. all the worst, like most shit parts of my life uh, were bad at the time, but I'm very, very grateful for them now. And I wouldn't... You know, they haven't been as bad as yours, but I, I am tougher because of them. And yeah. someone has asked whether your grief uh, and death changed your decision process. Um, <laughs> did it change my what? My decision making process? Yeah. What in terms of how I make decisions? I suppose that means, yeah, how you make decisions. Did it make you tough? Oh, yeah. Well, I think what it does, and again, I'm sure other people have experienced this, it certainly, I think I was incapable of making decisions before. So I think you do get gripped by that sense of, you know, for a number of reasons, it's an insult, people aren't here, that sense of time passing and being precious. And literally, I think that sense of, that experience of literally watching Peep Show with my sister on, you know, a week in January, and then three weeks later her being dead, it was so odd to me that I think I'm, I think that does change you, you know. Um, So I think I have much more of a sense of not, not wasting time, I suppose. It's just a cliche. It's the carpe diem, and everyone goes through that that mad that mad phase. Of, well, you had a mad phase in the book. I loved your your I few months a, of yes. I really did. Go and a I bit need yes. to know who that actor was. Oh yes. Well, I can. T- shall I tell you? Yeah. Well, will you tell the story, and then I'll tell you what it is quickly. Well, she took on several men. <laughs> and no, it wasn't. Um, Instead of being a bit of a wallflower, (laughs) Emily would just say, yes, you want to go to a dinner party? Yes, you want to fly to wherever it was, Cannes? Yes, we'll go do this, we'll do that. And then there was a very handsome, famous actor at one of these parties, I think in the south of France, who invited you out onto a balcony because you just had this aura of like, yes, this new confidence. I think it's because I had cigarettes, actually. (laughs) But no, I did. It was just, you know what it was, that encounter with him? And I say encounter because nothing happened like that. I wish it had. Um, but it was more just that sense that I'd been feeling. I described myself as kind of like, you know, I felt like the raven at a picnic. Everyone's like, oh, and then like, wham. I was like the Monty Python foot ruining everything. It was like, oh, here comes old griefy McGrief face. <laughs> so that to me, it was the first time I went out and he didn't know my backstory. Mm. It was this young, hot actor and he was just chatting to me. And I thought, oh, this is really nice. And everyone was kind of looking at me like, why is he chatting to that woman who's in her 40s and he should be with us, we're 22, what's he chatting with her? And I was like, well, sorry. you bitches you know. are normal, you're ordinary. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you believe in signs or do you look for signs that Rachel and your parents are still looking out for you? Oh, that's so lovely, whoever wrote that. Mm. I think, I don't believe, you know, sometimes people say, oh, I say that. Do you know, I had a weird thing the other night. This is ridiculous, but again, I'm going to share it with you. 
I saw a spider, and my sister's favourite book was Charlotte's Web. When we were kids, she would read it to me. And then it really, I put that in the dedication at the beginning because. Yeah, oh, listen, that's when I was crying. And then it, the book is <laughs> not always sad. In. The book is so funny, funny, funny. It's sad for a time and then funny again. But this dedication, yeah, I mean, I was gone. That's some, someone has okay. asked Do you think now that you have Ray, you won't be looking for another man? Yes, people have said that. They're like, oh, have you got a boyfriend substitute? In fact, I was interviewed by The Times and she asked me that. And I said, no, he's a dog. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Didn't go well. I think it's a Lindsay DePaul attitude. They're a luxury. You know, they're a a expensive luxury. Maybe we'll have one, maybe we won't. Maybe you have one, maybe you don't. But it's certainly not a necessity to live your life. You bought your house, Emily, and no man can tell you what to do in it. I feel like men are just so complicated, like a like a whippet, you know, just so complicated. The long walks Apologies on the beach. to all the lovely men here. You're not like women. But why are they like the whippets? walks on the beach are lovely, but it's a lot of training involved <laughs> to get there. No. Yeah, but that's why we don't have big dogs. You know my theory. Yeah. People say to me and Catherine, "Oh, we have those little dogs." I'm like, because I've seen Labrador's poos. You may as well have Greg Davis pooing. It's like <laughs> it's massive. They're huge. They lie on your bed and it's like having a big man, you know, these little things. But you know, Ray is so special. I mean, look at him. He is the right dog for you. Look at him. And look at that, guys. If it's meant to be, it'll happen. And there are some wonderful men. Thank you to all the men who've come here. Thank you. All the men I've taken on and will take on. Okay, Emily. Go on. Big fan. Yeah. I think we could be friends. What's weird to ask someone. Um... You. That's 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 fan fan mail. Just one. Okay, there are two minutes left. Oh. Annie runs a tight ship. A lot can happen in that. Emily, you said you change the way you speak depending on the type of people you're with. Have you ever said the wrong thing to someone because of this? Because of the way I speak. Oh yes. Have you ever misread the group? Oh yes, yes, yes. Wrong? I know exactly what you mean. Oh yeah, I'm doing that all the time. I'm I'm always misspeaking and I'm always coming out. The... Well, I think I suppose you mean in the sense of saying being the wrong type of person in the wrong situation yeah um i think i often i sometimes do with frank on the radio show because i just get so used to talking to him in a certain way and he refers to himself as you know he has this thing he calls himself a bit of a git because someone wrote into the show and said let's face it frank you are a bit of a git (laughs) and you know what i like about frank he went yeah i am actually aren't i i really accept that but i was sort of forget that you can't talk to other people like that. So I might say to my agent, for example, I say, that's a stupid idea, you're being an idiot. And then I think, oh, it's not Frank. You can't say that. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I'm guilty of gittishness myself. You're not. You're such a wonderful person, really transformative in my life. And I do worry sometimes about my own mortality and who would guide so my I. child. Look how gorgeous you are. That's, too, that's you know. I one of my daughter, one of my daughters, I mean, well, cat's out of the bag. My sister. <laughs> I love it if you were pretending. <laughs> 90. Yeah. <laughs> one of my uh, 45-year-old daughters. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, they just couldn't do it for a variety of yeah. reasons. And um, that is a, something very comforting that I got from this. I thought, if anything should happen to me in three weeks then um, I'm so grateful that you're in my daughter's life and she would have someone. I mean, I know you don't want to write this all again, but if you just would. (laughs) Um, And and you're going to love the book so much. Uh, You're just, I'm so happy for 
I mean, the grief is bad, but the lessons that it has taught you, thank you for sharing them with us all. I want to say so, one nope, thing before we go. I have to about you. Okay. No, well, no, 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 don't. She always does this. It's totally fake. She I'm a bit it. of a gear. Um, she, you did something, but this is important. It's not too gushing. It was just something that I wanted to share with everyone, which was that I learned something from you. Um, but we're going to talk about that. Um, I learned something from you, which was about opening up, because I don't know if you remember, you know, this was in the summer, wasn't it? And mm. I was going through a bad period, I think. I'd written the book, I, it was, all memories had come back, I was a bit low. And my, I, did, I went old me and I hid away and I was embarrassed and I felt ashamed because I thought I want to turn up and be glossy and have makeup and wear a cool t-shirt with my dog on it and I didn't feel like that I was a bit sweatpants and depression and I hid away from you and then I realized you started to think it was something you'd done and I remember you sent me a text going you know is everything okay gal and it was like and then I remember I told you I just said it was the first time I'd ever done that I sent you a text and I said no I'm not okay I'm, I'm really down and I came over and I just burst into tears and I thought I can't cry in front of Catherine. She's like this cool stand-up and she's going to be like, oh, my God. But, you know, sorry, that's an impression. But, but you, um, you were so sweet and I, I never forgot that and you just really, you made me feel a lot better and you just put your arm around me and you told me about a friend of yours and you were just lovely and, yeah, that taught me a lot that you should just tell friends and I think everyone here who has that is just going through a bad time just tell people that people are really nice you know this is what I'm saying people are lovely I thought they were assholes, but they're lovely um so yeah yes tell people yeah. how you're feeling and that especially I you know I said I didn't want any men in my life earlier that especially goes for men tell people about your feelings everybody yeah. tell people and tell people about everybody died so I got a dog mm -hmm. let's hear it again thank you for being here Emily Dean <laughs>